Part six, chapter four of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Cain. Part six, chapter four. The Governor could not forget Tinwald. Exaggerating the humiliation of that day, he thought his influence in the island was gone. He sold his horses and carriages and otherwise behaved like a man who expected to be recalled. Towards Philip he showed no malice. It was not merely as the author of his shame that Philip had disappointed him. He had half-cherished a hope that Philip would become his son-in-law. But when the rod in his hand had failed him, when it proved too big for a staff and too rough for a crutch, he did not attempt to break it. Either from the instinct of a gentleman, or the pride of a strong man, he continued to shower his favours upon Philip. Going to London with his wife and daughter at the beginning of the new year, he appointed Philip to act as his deputy. Philip did not abuse his powers. As grandson of the one great manxman of his century, and himself a man of talents, he was readily accepted by the island. His only drawback was his settled melancholy. This added to his interest if it took from his popularity. The ladies began to whisper that he had fallen in love, and that his heart was buried in the grave. He did not forget old comrades. It was remembered in his favour that one of his friends was a fisherman, a cousin across the bar of Bastardy, who had been a fool and gone through his fortune. On St. Bridget's Day, Philip held Deemster's court in Ramsey. The snow had gone and the earth had the smell of violets. It was almost as if the violets themselves lay close beneath the soil, and their odour had been too long kept under. The sun, which had not been seen for weeks, had burst out that day. The air was warm and the sky was blue. Inside the courthouse the upper arcs of the windows had been let down. The sun shone on the deemster as he sat on the dais, and the spring breeze played with his silvery wig. Sometimes, in the pauses of rasping voices, the birds were heard to sing from the trees on the lawn outside. The trial was a tedious and protracted one. It was the trial of Black Tom. During the epidemic that had visited the island, he had developed the character of a witch-doctor. His first appearance in court had been before the high bailiff, who had committed him to prison. He had been bailed out by Pete, and had forfeited his bail in an attempt at flight. The witnesses were now many, and some came from a long distance. It was desirable to conclude the same day. At five in the evening the deemster rose and said, "'The court will adjourn for an hour, gentlemen.' Philip took his own refreshments in the Deemster's room. Gemma Lord was with him, then put off his wig and gown and slipped through the prisoner's yard at the back and round the corner to Elm Cottage. It was now quite dark. The house was lit by the firelight only, which flashed like will-o'-the-wisp on the hall window. Philip was surprised by unusual sounds. There was laughter within, then singing, and then laughter again. He had reached the porch and his approach had not been heard. The door stood open, and he looked in and listened. The room was barer than he had ever seen it. A table, three chairs, a cradle, a dresser, and a corner cupboard. Nancy sat by the fire with the child on her lap. Pete was squatting on the floor, which was strewn with rushes, and singing, Come, Bridget, St. Bridget, come in at my door, the crock's on the bink and the rushes on the floor. Then getting on to all fours like a great boy, and bobbing his head up and down, and making deep growls to imitate the terrors of a wild beast, 
He made little runs and plunges at the child, who jumped and crowed in Nancy's lap and laughed and squealed till she kinked. "'Now stop, you great omathon, stop,' said Nancy. "'It isn't good for the little one, deed it isn't.' But Pete was too greedy of the child's joy to deny himself the delight of it. Making a great low sweep of the room, he came back, hopping on his haunches and barking like a dog. Then the child laughed till the laughter rolled like a marble in her little throat. Philip's own throat rose at the sight, and his breast began to ache. He felt the same thrill as before, the same yet different, more painful, more full of jealous longing. This was no place for him. He thought he would go away. But turning on his heel, he was seen by Pete, who was now on his back on the floor, rocking the child up and down like the bellows of an accordion, and to and fro like the sleigh of a loom. "'My faith, the Dempster! Come in, sir, come in!' cried Pete, looking over his forehead. Then, giving the child back to Nancy, he leapt to his feet. Philip entered with a sick yearning and sat down in the chair facing Nancy. "'You're wondering at me, Dempster. I know you are, sir,' said Pete. "'Deed, but I'm wondering at myself as well. I thought I was never going to see a glad day again.' and if the sky would ever be blue, I would be breaking my heart. But what is the Manx poet saying, sir? I have no will but thine, O God. That's me, sir, truth enough, and since the little one has been mending, I've never been so happy in my life. Philip muttered some commonplace, and put his thumb into the baby's hand. It was sucked in by the little fingers, as by the soft feelers of the sea anemone. Pete drew up the third chair, then all interest was centred on the child. "'She's growing,' said Philip huskily. "'And getting wise terrible,' said Pete. "'You wouldn't belave it, sir, but that child's got the head of an almanac. "'She has, though. Listen here, sir. What does the cow say, darling?' "'Moo,' said the little one. "'Look at that now,' said Pete rapturously. "'She knows what the dog says, too,' said Nancy. "'What does Dempster say, boch?' "'Bow-wow,' said the child.' "'Bless me soul,' said Pete, turning to Philip with amazement at the child's supernatural wisdom. "'And there's Tom Hommy's boy, and a fine little fellow enough for it, but six weeks older than this one, and not a word out of him yet.' Hearing himself talked of, the dog had come from under the table. The child gurgled down at it, then made purring noises at its own feet, and wriggled in Nancy's lap. "'Dear heart alive, if it's not like nursing an eel,' said Nancy. "'Be quiet, will you?' and the little one was shaken back to her seat. "'Aisy, old woman,' said Pete. "'She's just wanting her little shoes and stockings off, that's it.' Then talking to the child, "'Um, am, im, lum, la, loo. Just so. I don't know what that means myself, but she does, you see. "'Oh, the child is teaching me heaps, sir. "'Listening to the little one, I'm remembering things. "'Well, we're only big children, the best of us. "'That's the way the world's keeping young.' and God help it when we're getting so clever there's no child left in us at all. Time for young women to be in bed, though, said Nancy, getting up to give the baby her bath. Let me have a hold of the rogue first, said Pete, and as Nancy took the child out of the room, he dragged at it and smothered its open mouth with kisses. Poor sport for you, sir, watching a foolish old father playing games with his little one, said Pete. Philip's answer was broken and confused. His eyes had begun to fill and to hide them he turned his head aside. Thinking he was looking at the empty places about the walls, Pete began to enlarge on his prosperity, and to talk as if he were driving all the trade of the island before him. 
Wonderful fishing now, Phil. I'm exporting a power of cod. Getting postal orders and stamps, and I don't know what. Seven and sixpence in a single post from Liverpool. That's nothing, sir, nothing at all. Nancy brought back the child, whose silvery curls were now damp. What? A young lady coming in her nightdress, cried Pete. Work enough. Had to get it over her head, too, said Nancy. She wouldn't. No, she wouldn't. Here, take and dry her hair by the fire while I warm up her supper. Pete rolled the sleeves of his jersey above his elbows, took the child on his knee, and rubbed her hair between his hands, singing, Come, Bridget, St. Bridget, come in at my door. Nancy clattered about in her clogs, filled the saucepan with bread and milk, and brought it to the fire. Give it to me, Nancy, said Philip, and he leaned over and held the saucepan above the bar. The child watched him intently. Well, did you ever, said Pete, the strain she's making of you, Philip. Don't you know the gentleman, darling? Oh, but he's knowing you, though. The saucepan boiled, and Philip handed it back to Nancy. Go to him, then. Away with you, said Pete. Go to your godfather. He'd have been your name father, too, if it had been a boy you'd been. Off you go. And he stretched out his hairy arms until the child touched the floor. Philip stooped to take the little one, who first pranced and beat the rushes with its feet, as with two drumsticks, then trod on its own legs, swirled about to Pete's arms, dropped its lower lip, and set up a terrified outcry. Ah, she knows her own father, bless her, cried Pete, plucking the child back to his breast. Philip dropped his head and laughed. A sort of creeping fear had taken possession of him, as if he felt remotely that the child was to be the channel of his retribution. Will you feed her yourself, Pete? said Nancy. She was coming up with a saucer, of which she was tasting the contents. He's that handy with a child, sir, you wouldn't think. Deed, you wouldn't. Then stooping on the baby as it ate its supper. But I'm saying, young woman, is there no sleep in your eyes tonight? No, but nodding away here like a wood thrush in a tree, said Pete. He was ladling the pobs into the child's mouth and scooping the overflow from her chin. Sleep's a terrible enemy of this one, sir. She's having a battle with it every night of life, anyway. God help her, she'll have luck better than some of us, or she'll be fighting it the other way about one of these days. She's usually going off with the spoon in her mouth, sir, for all the world like a little cherub, said Nancy. Too busy looking at her godfather tonight, though, said Pete. Well, look at him. You owe him your life, you little sandpiper. And my sakes, the straight like him you are, too. Isn't she, said Nancy, if I wasn't thinking the same myself. Couldn't look straighter like him if she'd been his born child. Now could she? And the curls, too, and the eyes. Well, well. If she'd been a boy now, began Pete. But Philip had risen to return to the courthouse, and Pete said in another tone, Hold hard a minute, sir. I've something to show you. Here, take the little one, Nancy. Pete lit a candle and led the way into the parlour. The room was empty of furniture, but at one end there was a stool, a stone mason's mallet, a few chisels, and a large stone. The stone was a gravestone. Pete approached it solemnly, held up the candle in front of it, and said in a low voice, It's for her. I've been doing it myself, sir, and it's lasted me all winter, dark nights and bad days. I'll be finishing it tonight, though, God willing, and tomorrow, maybe, I'll be taking it to Douglas. Is it? began Philip, but he could not finish. The stone was a plain slab, rounded at the top, beveled about the edge, smoothed on the face, 
and chiselled over the back, but there was no sign or symbol on it, and no lettering or inscription. "'Is there to be no name?' asked Philip at last. "'No,' said Pete. "'No?' "'Tell you the truth, sir, I've been reading what it's saying in the old book about the recording angel calling the dead out of their graves.' "'Yes?' "'And I've been thinking the way he'll be doing it will be going to the graveyards and seeing the names on the gravestones, and calling them out loud to rise up to judgment. Some, as it's saying, to life eternal, and some to everlasting punishment.' "'Well?' "'Well, sir, I've been thinking if he comes to this one and sees no name on it,' Pete's voice sank to a whisper, "'maybe he'll pass it by and let the poor sinner sleep on.' Stumbling back to the courthouse through the dark lane, Philip thought, "'It was a lie, then. But it's true now. It must be true. She must be dead.' There was a sort of relief in the certainty. It was an end at all events, a pitiful end, a cowardly end a kind of sneaking out of fate's fingers. It was not what he had looked for and intended, but he struggled to reconcile himself to it. Then he remembered the child and thought, Why should I disturb it? Why should I disturb Pete? I will watch over it all its life. I will protect it and find a way to provide for it. I will do my duty by it. The child shall never want. He was offering the key to the lock of the prisoner's yard when someone passed him in the lane peered into his face, then turned about and spoke. "'Oh, it's you, Deemster Christian.' "'Yes, doctor. Good night.' "'Have you heard the news from Ballawhaine? The old gentleman had another stroke this morning.' "'No, I had not heard it. Another? Dear me, dear me.' Back in his room, Philip resumed his wig and gown and returned to the courthouse. The place was now lit up by candlelight and densely crowded. Everybody rose to his feet as the deemster stepped to the dais. End of part six, chapter four.